0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Eurasian Americans, wherever you are, whenever you may be listening to this, we wish you all the health, safety, and happiness in the world. We're getting uh, through the summer um, and recording this uh, with our guest here on August 25th. Um, COVID is still going on, there's fires everywhere, and it looks like 2020 keeps throwing extra curveballs at us, um, but we're, we're, we're moving on, we're persisting. Uh, we now have exactly 70 days, 10 weeks until the election, which is something that I'm very passionate about. Um, if you're hearing this uh, before the end of September, please do make sure to go fill out your census and to register to vote. And for the love of God, if you can, vote early um, before they start taking away more mailboxes. So it's a nice primer. Um, it's, you know, this doing this show and, and talking about the things that we're um, so lucky to talk about. Um, has given me the opportunity to reconnect with some friends from you know earlier parts of my life um, and some friends who you know I wasn't necessarily aware of what they were doing or you know uh, sort of the work that they were doing. And so this guest is somebody that I went to high school with um, so to completely date ourselves uh, that was about 20 years ago um, 23 years ago to be exact. and so um, for having the second for being the second high school classmate to come on the show after Jared Chung it is my distinct pleasure to welcome Jessica Lee to the show. Hi, Jessica.
1: Hey, Jerry. How's it going?
0: Good. Um, we went to high school in New York City, and we're now both in California. So um, if you're out there still, come on and join us here on the West Coast. Um, but I think most of our classmates are still East Coast. We don't, I know uh, there's a few of us out here. but So share with us a little bit about uh, you, a uh, brief intro, before we get into learning about your your family's origin story. Tell us a little bit about Jessica and the work that you do now.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and can't believe it's been twenty three years. I feel really old. <laughs> A long time ago. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. So so I am currently living in Oakland, California, um, with my partner and and our dog. And I work on uh, diversity, equity, inclusion issues with nonprofits, and it's really about changing and shifting the culture. Of the organization because for the longest time you know people were talking about how we need to diversify the board or the staff and it really became about tokenizing people of color right yeah. so it's like we want you because you're black or you know you're brown and but we don't want your thoughts and we don't want you to actually share with us your suggestions of course i don't say it like that right but you know for me it's yeah you know, i've been in situations where i've been the token Asian minority. I've also been in situations where I've had positional power, and then I challenge, you know, the the dominant culture. And so, you know, having been in the nonprofit sector for fifteen years, do a lot of consulting work, and I really try to help organizations um, make that shift, which I think is is crucial.
0: You know, it's it's funny you you bring up the tokenizing. Um, I distinctly remember an experience that I had coming out of college. I ended up. Going into working at a home builder, but one of the offers that I had was at a, a pretty big winery out here in California, and at the time I think they were number one or number two. And you know, as as with uh, winery business or you know business, exactly, like like, oh, they're not the most diverse uh, places in the world. So this was after like rounds of interviews, and I went, did a ride along, and like I got to the final, I got I I got the offer. And, you know, this was the coolest thing. As a college kid, you got invited to this resort and they were trying to smooze you and do accepting. And even then, like, there were like 20 people in the room, um, you know, trying to woo us and celebrate us. And between the company folks and the, you know, graduates, there were three Asian people. And so, you know, and then nobody else of even uh, different uh, skin tone. And so I asked, like, hey, like, what's diversity like over at, you know, your company? And I kid you not, like, the, the head recruiter, like named like the two Asian people that he knew in the entire (laughs) company. And I was like, well, that's cool. I guess, you know, um, and I genuinely thought that like, you know, they were not, you know, this wasn't to like demean my own value, but I just felt like there was a different motivation for hiring a a bunch of people that are, that was of color because then we'd really make nice uh, photos on next year diversity brochure or to take us around to different college campuses to say like, hey, you know. We, we have diverse people. And so, you know, hopefully we, we get to a point in our in our culture and in our society where nobody feels that way. Um, I don't think that feeling will ever go away. This is sort of like the, if you go to a restaurant and they sit your family towards the back where there's not a lot of other people, you're like, wait a minute, why are we, you know? <laughs> I and mean, it might just be that that was a rotation, but if you're the only non-white people in a restaurant and you get sit, sat in somewhere else, that thought does cross our mind. So well, I'm really, really glad that you're doing the work that you're doing. I think when it comes to the EI work particularly, you know, it's really good to see practitioners that look like me and you, because I think it also gives voice to the fact that we ought to be included, that we have to be included, not just from the participant side, but of the people uh, directing the dialogue or, you know, curating the dialogue. Um, you do great work. You put a ton of content out there. Another Oakland uh, based amazing person Michelle Kim also does a lot of great diversity work and and so it is really really awesome to see our sisters and our brothers out there um, doing the work and, and not to say and I don't think that you know what you guys are doing is to say like oh DEI should be an Asian centric conversation that's certainly not the point but it does and I guess we can talk about it more as we as we talk about your work later in the conversation um, but I've been a lot of DEI conversation where it seems like
2: you know uh,
0: yellow is a color that's left out of the conversation often. Um, mm-hmm. when it comes to diversity work or how people define diversity metrics. And so, in short, very grateful for the work that you do and really excited to have this conversation with you. Um, let's learn more about Jessica and your your family. Um, share with us about the Lee family. How did you guys become Chinese Americans uh, to where you guys immigrated? And tell us a little bit about your childhood.
1: Yeah, so I was born in Hong Kong um, with a British passport, essentially, British British citizenship. Um, which is interesting because when I was studying in London in college, and you know, I learned that not that many British citizenships were given out to um, people in Hong Kong. I think they said it was about a million, a little over a million. And so, so I came with that. And so I, I was kind of born into privilege in terms of having that status, which I didn't know at the time. I actually didn't know about it until uh, we em- immigrated here when I was four, and then a couple of years later, my mom applied to become a naturalized citizen. And then we had to pull out our documents, you know, and turn them in. So, um, my family left Hong Kong for the reason that Hong Kong is in conflict today. They were afraid of the the turnover and what would happen in '97. Um, that their rights would be taken away. That there wouldn't be opportunities for us. And so, they foresaw that coming. And you know, there were a lot of Hong Kong families that also left. You know, back in the '80s for very similar reasons, like immigrating to. Canada, the US, Australia. And so I grew up in, in New York and you know it's it's interesting because the way we talk about immigrants these days with, with the President and and Congress, it, it's seen as like, you know, um, an issue where where people come here and they they like you know take away our jobs or they go on, you know, government benefits, and there's a lot of negative uh, perceptions out there about immigrants. And, you know, I think what most people don't realize is that, like, for my family, we left a middle class, upper middle class, um, you know, society to come here and live in poverty. You know, like, my first year here, um, this is based off of what my parents told me, like, we didn't even have enough money to buy chicken. And my mom was on food stamps for, I think, a month until we realized that food stamps didn't buy any of the ethnic foods or any of the healthy foods that we actually she actually wanted us to eat right and so and so like you know because of that experience and also my parents started their own own business uh, when i was a kid and it was in new york city doing industrial cleaning of commercial restaurant kitchens and trust me no white people fought for those jobs at all i mean my parents hired you know latinx workers even even some Asian immigrants didn't want those jobs because you're talking about working overnight. You know, you go to the restaurants when they close. You um, basically take really heavy equipment and you power wash everything, and then you scrape and and you know you carry out buckets of oil. And it's not it's not the most you know pleasant thing, right? And your clothes smell, your car smell. I remember our house smelled, and that's but that's just how you know we were raised. Um, and you know, my 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 dad had a really hard time with it because he owned a taxi in Hong Kong and all he did was drive and he loved driving. You know, owning a taxi in Hong Kong is actually really expensive. It's sort of like getting a, a medallion in New York City, right? Like a taxi cab driver. Um, so he went from that lifestyle to to sleeping four hours a day during a day, working all the time. And it was really hard for for my parents. Um, yeah, and I so I I grew up and and um, really tried to try to understand culturally like my own identity as an Asian American because I had come before a lot of other Hong Kong kids did so because I came when I was four a lot of my friends in elementary school came when like I think they arrived when I was seven or eight and so I wasn't American enough for the American kids the American white kids and I wasn't Asian enough for the Asian kids because I remember like in the playground, they would ask me, "Oh, do you know Andy Lau?" I'm like, "Who's Andy Lau?" Like, I watch Full House, Family Matters <laughs> when I <laughs> go home, you know, like, and and you know, so it was just it was just really hard, just just navigating those two worlds.
0: That's fascinating. I, I think, and in, in particularly um, in, in New York City, it was so overall. It's very diverse, but when you start to get into different pockets of the boroughs and specific neighborhoods it may not be as diverse as the overall picture. Um, But what part of the city did you guys grow up in and how did that impact sort of how you viewed yourself and and your surroundings?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in in Fresh Meadows, um, which is right, uh, like, close to Flushing. People know Flushing now. They didn't know it back then. (laughs) It wasn't a thing. Um, But Flushing also, like, evolved. Because when I was younger, it was more Indian-American, definitely... um, Hong Kong American I would say Um, and we had some white people and then the older I got the more Chinese and Korean it became Um, and 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 so even though I lived in Fresh Meadows which is like kind of where it's like a suburb um, we were in Flushing a lot you know and and so growing up in that community really made me um, think about well now like reflecting on my privilege at growing up in an Asian neighborhood because, you know, I lived in D.C. for eight years. I went to college in upstate New York, and I remember, like, for almost, what was that, like, 14 years of my life, I didn't have good Asian food. And so, you know, we think about, you know, the privileges that we hold, and that's one of the things that I remember really missing um, for a part of my young adult life. And then when I was in, in high school, actually, my family moved us out to Jamaica. Mm. Um, for those of you who don't know, that's where Donald Trump was, (laughs) was when he was younger. I didn't know him or his family. Obviously they were rich by then. Not something I like to talk about, but it was a very black community, South Asian and black community. And so I think for me, like having that diversity growing up, was really interesting because, because people are, you know, segregated by ethnicities, right? By ethnic neighborhoods, even in Queens. And For me, like when I was growing up in Fresh Meadows, I actually lived on a street and I reflect a lot on that now when I do my DEI work. Because I lived on a street where my downstairs neighbor was was, um, Chinese from China. My next door neighbor was Peruvian. And um, they also had a family who was a white single mom with her son. And then I had another neighbor that was like a multi-generational white family. So it was a grandmother single mom and her son. next door was another Latinx family and above that family lived a black family. And so all the kids would just play after school. but having that diversity when you're a kid and having friends of so many different ethnicities makes you I think interact with people differently because when you've lived that life for years and that's how you are you are raised and you' you know you don't know racism you know like when you're that young, I think it really helps you like understand diversity and see it in a, in a in a different way.
0: I think that's such a beautiful point that you make. I, I think um, even though separate neighborhoods, or I guess you know now there are some neighborhoods that obviously Flushing in Flushing, you think of like Chinese and Korean people. You think of um, Astoria. You think of different people in, in New York City. But just the design of the city and its reliance on public transportation and its density. Um, I, I think it encourages you or actually forces you uh, to interact and at least rub shoulders with people that look very different than you. Um, you know, I grew up, I was born in Korea, uh, grew up mostly in a suburb out here in LA and, and moved to New York right before we started high school together in 97. And then that was a very, very big adjustment period, not just for me, but for my parents to be like, okay, like we can't just stay in our car and shuttle these kids around and just go from point A to point B. Um, and, and I think, you know, my, my, mare, my mom was like frightened, because, you know, he's like, what do you mean these kids have to take the subway and the bus by themselves, right? <laughs> like, it's like mother mother uh, instinct freaked outness, right? Like, yeah. and all the other New York moms are like, these kids been walking around by themselves since they were born. Like, chill.
1: That's um, true.
0: You know, which, which was odd because we, we came from Korea, which that's the norm. And that's how she grew up. But then our, our five-year stay in California, you know, obviously, as we were growing up, my brother and I, um, through our childhood and, you know, my mom's primary job was to take care of us. And to shuttle us around so um you know new york city was, was such an amazing place um, i've only you know uh, only got to spend three years there but uh just to make you humble and to see different sides of life um particularly if you grew up in the outer boroughs um you know we're, we're seeing now a lot of commentary about new york city and its future and what COVID has done to new york city and a lot of that stuff is written from people who've only lived in specific neighborhoods in New York City and either came with money or, or have money now, and so um, really, really cool to get that perspective. Um, so, as, as we've alluded to, um, you and I went to school together in, in high school in the Bronx, which is quite a bit as away from Fresh Meadows or or uh, Bayside and Flushing, where our family lived. Um, what was that like? Because I, you know, our school classmate demographic was. You know, far more diverse than most local high schools in the country. Um, obviously, it was uh, a, a school that you had to test into. So it was a bit of a self selection uh, process going on. But um, share with us that experience and, and what was that? How was that different from the neighborhood that you grew up with?
1: Yeah, you know, high school was a very interesting place for me. And, and looking back, I mean, I agree with you. Like, it was like, what? 13, when we had to take the subway, he took the bus to the subway. And I tell my friends that in California, they're like, what are you talking about? Like, we drive our kids half a mile to school. I'm like, why can't they just walk themselves, right? They're seven, they can go. I mean, they know the way. I just don't, I don't get it. But I I do think that like, growing up as a New Yorker really hardens you. And I remember thinking when I was younger, like, I would never want to raise my kids anywhere else because where else are they going to learn street smarts, Right. So I mean, that's just the thing that's very interesting about New York. Um, in terms of our diversity of, of uh, our high school, you know, I, I would say that our high school was somewhat diverse, but not completely diverse, right? Like we had, what, three black kids in our class? Maybe, maybe a few five. more, but
0: enough. <laughs> like, well, it, it, enough, but it, it, it did not, rep- you know, I, I guess it's safe to say, like, and there's a lot of chatter about specialized high schools. Now, definitely yeah. Lee did not reflect the diversity of the city.
1: No, it's did not. In any way, not. shape, or form. Yep. It did not. And, and and I think that was one of the things I was really uncomfortable with because it was like, because I grew up in in Flushing Fresh Meadows with lots of Asian kids. And then there'd be like a whole bunch of us getting on the subway together, you know, because you had to be at school at a certain time. Um, and it was, well, the subway was kind of like our school bus. But then we get there and it was like, it felt like it was 50% Asian, East Asian, I mean, I'm probably wrong, but it, it just felt like everywhere I looked was like an Asian kid. Which, for me, it felt a little uncomfortable because of how I was saying I grew up earlier in life, right? On a block with, a bunch, with more diversity. Um, and I'd always felt that discomfort, actually, in high school. And didn't really talk about it because when I did bring it up, people were like, what are you talking about? Like, it's great that there are other Asian kids, but because I've been bullied by Asian kids... Growing up, like, because I wasn't Asian enough, and then I had such a diverse community on my block. It was just weird to, it was just weird to go to school like that. It was like Asian and and white, um, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then like what, I, I black think so. kids.
0: Yeah, and, and um, it's it's interesting geographically where our school was located, which is as north in the Bronx borough, or as one of the most northern points of New York City. Um, but most of the students didn't come from either the borough, certainly not as maybe a handful from, you know, uh, walkable or, you know, in the immediate area. Um, I don't know what the metrics were, but you're right. You know, we're predominantly Asian. Um, There were, you know, groups of students who came from the same junior high school or came from, you know, same neighborhoods um, with established friendships. Um, You know, we had, you know, some folks come in, from as far as Staten Island, which um, is insane, if you think about like that—that that sacrifice that they made—you know, hour hour and a half on the bus every day, or three hours in the bus every day, um, just to go to high school. Um, our high school didn't have after-school clubs as as much as other schools did. Right. We didn't have a football team. We didn't have night games. We didn't have dances. Um, it was just <laughs> like, all right, you know, smarty pants, go learn and go home before it gets dark, because you know it's probably not safe for you guys to be out late. Um, yeah. but I, I think it's fascinating. Like, you know, I think about my high school experience in New York city as something like you said, that helped me get street smarts because you have to, right. Mm-hmm. You can't, you can't be aloof sitting on a subway car with a backpack or fall asleep because there's a decent chance that you might get your stuff jacked or get hurt or get lost. And, you know,
1: or miss um, your stop.
0: Yeah. which is. <laughs> I mean, at least the 7 train, we took it to the end. So, like, you know, somebody woke you up and we we all, you know, enough, again, all the, not all, enough people lived in Flushing, which is, again, a very Asian part of town. And from Flushing, Mm -hmm. you could take the bus into other parts of uh, the deeper ends of Queens that, you know, you're rarely going home alone. Um, But yeah, I I think that's, you know, the, the high school experience, I think, is fascinating. And I think if we look at our friends from high school now, like, Um, You know, many of them took the traditional paths and doing amazing things as as doctors, as lawyers, um, you know, or or went to grad school and, you know, pursued Uh various things. Um, But that's what, you know, I think Bronx science kids are supposed to do that, right? Like that's what the expectation was set for us in a very traditionally defined narrow definition of like what we were supposed to do. Um, So knowing what you do now, which is a lot of diversity work. um, I mean, I don't even know if we knew that was a thing back then. Like that's something that you could pursue as a career or like, you know, we didn't. Like I don't I don't think there was anything explicitly or overtly diversity, like nothing about that, even in the way that we talked about things. Like mm-hmm. you know, I was reflecting on it and it's like I, I was pretty involved with, you know, a lot of student government stuff. Um, was on the newspaper and like all this other stuff that gave me an insight into into how the school structure was. We didn't really like talk about it right like i don't i don't even know if at the student organization or student government level like we talked about making the cabinet or the senate look diverse and to make sure that people felt included and in all aspects of the diversity conversation it wasn't like racial diversity would fix all of it because there was a lot of socioeconomic diversity within the school system that wasn't necessarily being talked about and, and now like in high school you know maybe high school kids now like they're they're Uh, wiser than we ever were so they're you know they're going to change the world one day and you know um, we're we're lucky to you know uh, witness that Um, but tell us about some of the uh, influences that you had and you know going you know from Fresh Meadows to science like what did you want to be when you grew up what were your influences?
1: Yeah I think for me I wanted to be a journalist because I had worked I'd always liked the newspapers and watching the news and you know I was kind of a latchkey kid, so my parents my parents work late at night, right? So I'd watch, I'd watch TV, and what comes on at ten o'clock, you know, on the free TV channels, and it's the news. So I, I did that, and then I, I I did intern at some of the um, local Queens newspapers, um, and then I was involved in a Beacon Center after school program that was um, was basically creating the newsletter for that program. Um, so I wanted to be a journalist, and of course, that's not something that's accepted, right? Like, why would you be a journalist? Like, what is that? You know, like, it's like, it's your choices are lawyer or doctor. Pick one, you know. Um, I didn't want to be a doctor. And mom's like, but you would make a great lawyer because you're, you're constantly arguing with me. <laughs> like most teenagers are. And and I didn't want to do it because my mom wanted me to to, to do it. So, uh, I, I, you know, it's interesting because the more that I think about it, it's like, I don't, Need a law degree because I don't practice law, right? But a lot of the the characteristics of lawyers, like I feel like, are are honed in, in activism. So for me, like when I was in when I was a senior in high school, I volunteered on the Al Gore campaign because we were 17 at the time, or I was 17 at the time, and I was way too young to vote. But I remember that we took a government class and we were assigned um, we were assigned to, to watch the presidential debates and we had to write out like what, um, generally the candidates were saying their, their positions were on. Mm. And I remember I was writing down what Bush was saying and how he was going to take us to war, you know, and all of that. And, and I was like, no, I, I'm not going to war. Like that's ridiculous. Um, and, and so I, I volunteered at the Al Gore campaign and when he lost, well, first of all, when there was no decision, Like after election night, I was really confused because that's what we were taught. Like, you know, people vote and then you know right away who's going to be the next president, right? And because there was no decision and then they had to go to the Supreme Court and all of that, I was like, okay, so basically Al Gore won the popular vote, but he's not the president. That doesn't make any sense. That's not, we don't, we don't have the electoral college in our school elections, right? Like what is this thing that, you know, the country doesn't want, Now Bush to be president, and then, and so, I remember like taking that with me and and going to college, and I had wanted to um, to actually pursue a management degree and go into business. I don't know why, but I'd always been really interested in in business stuff, even though I didn't want to be a business person because my parents, you know, had a business. But I remember I was taking a math class, and I didn't do well. I actually was one of those science kids who did not excel at math or (laughs) science. (laughs) Um, but I did great, you know, government, history, English, like everything else. Um, and I remember my, my academic counselor was like, what do you, what do you actually like to do? Like, what are you passionate about? You should like major in something that you're excited about doing. And for me, that was really political science. And so that's kind of like how I found my footing. I ended up, I did end up applying to one law school, didn't get in. And then freaked out because a recession was coming, then decided that I needed to go to grad school, found five schools across the country that were still (laughs) accepting applications in January, February, and applied and ended up um, actually getting a degree in public administration. Um, And so I feel like I feel like, yeah, even though I'm not a lawyer, I do have that policy background. And for me, like I very much I think became an activist over the years with what was happening with the elections and then just you know seeing the amount of social injustice in our country and then the lack of awareness i i was saying earlier that you know i had that homework assignment and and bush said he was taking us to war and then when the iraq war started people were like well how come there's a war and i'm like because he said he was going to start one like like <laughs> were you not listening <laughs> like why are you surprised right and then, you know, watching Muslims get attacked on campus. It was just everything. You know, it was yeah. like one thing after another. And, and I feel like 2020 has been like that for a lot of people. And it's, it's definitely woken people up. But I think I was, a, I was awakened throughout the years.
0: I, we, we hear that a lot, maybe from some younger folks. Or maybe at least it's either younger folks or people who've been blinded in their own privilege. And their access and their wealth, education, the list goes on. And, and they say ignorant things like, I can't believe this is happening now. Or like, I didn't know our country had these crazy people. Or, you know, all these things that basically have the connotation that it's their first time experiencing or witnessing um, injustice, um, particularly for our folks, our people, right? Like, racism, Israel, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, we've been dealing with this shit since we got here. Um, and, and maybe because your parents raised you in a, in a very comfortable place, like I moved to Fullerton or, you know, in parts of the country where um, your status, your wealth, your education could help you or shielded you um, from some of this stuff. But it was always there, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I remember distinctly in high school, um, I know 2020 um, with, with the unjust murder of George Floyd, you know, there's a lot of protests and there's a lot of you know, activism and wanting to keep police accountable. The very, very first protest that I actively partook in was the unjust murder of Amadou Diallo, which happened when you and I were in high school. And I didn't even know what the hell was going on, but I was like, that was messed up. He shouldn't have been killed. So like, and we're all going to walk out of class. Like, that sounds cool. Let's do it, right? And Mm -hmm. and I, we, we weren't old enough, mature enough. Our parents certainly didn't have the cognitive dissonance to tell us what the hell was going on. Because right. they're busy trying to survive and you know just be immigrants, like. But it was always there, you know. Like police didn't wake up in 2020 and be like, "Hey, we're gonna just start doing shit." They've been getting away with it for years. Um, even with the most recent one, uh, with Jacob Blake in Wisconsin, like, yes, like, without cell phones, like that gets swept under the rug. That never makes the news. George Floyd doesn't make the news without cameras, right? Like, and, and so. It's been going on. We've all experienced it. And I think, unfortunately, for, for all the right reasons, our well-intentioned parents and community and, and social groups growing up sort of led us to believe that if only you studied harder, if only you got the right degrees, the right jobs, the right then the right address with the right country club and the right network, that we could somehow achieve our way out of racism achieve our way out of being treated differently. Um, And to a degree, I'm sure some people still believe that and some people still live in that world where they may not be the recipient of blatant racism because of where they live or with whom they work or whatnot. Um, But, you know, just a reminder for for some of our peers too, like, nah, man, that shit was always there. Um, You know, I mean, even... Living through, and if we witnessed it, and maybe it wasn't us, but we witnessed it. We all lived through. If you're, you know, I don't know, a millennial, like uh, you, you, lived through nine eleven, and you and you uh-huh. saw um, your friends, and your neighbors, and people on, you know, people who look a little bit differently than we do, get treated differently, and, and in a bad way. And what do we do then? What are we doing now about it? And you know, but I think it all makes sense that, in in a way, not everybody, not all change comes from you know, marching, not all change comes from the political spectrum. It it changes with how we change the topic of conversation and what's allowed and what's expected in our everyday experiences, whether it is at work or through our community organizations and whatnot. So share with us, you know, some of the work that you did in D.C. and in in that front and ultimately leading to you coming out to California and then starting your own practice.
1: Yeah, so so in D.C., I wouldn't classify myself as a DEI person. I was primarily working with refugee immigrant communities on gender based violence issues. So, you know, sexual assault, domestic violence, human trafficking. But it was interesting because I was an executive director for an, an API uh, organization in DC. And we would constantly have to convince people one, that DC had Asian Americans who lived there, and two, that we needed funding because we're not rich. Right? So it was basically dispelling the model minority myth. Um, so that was constantly the thing. And then, and then I'd have to go to mainstream organizations because our organization was too small to serve everybody. And so I'd have to go to mainstream organizations and deliver trainings, workshops on what cultural humility was and how to actually work with our community in a way where you have to be aware of your power, your privilege, your own biases in order to serve like an Asian woman who is coming into, into your program. Um, in a way that would make her feel safe and comfortable. And yet we know that these biases still exist. Cause I remember like I was working with um, in Baltimore, you know, we had a client who um, was taking a cab with another client to get groceries. And um, the cab driver happened to speak the same language as as our client. And so I think they exchanged a few words. I don't really know what it was, right? Um, And then when they got dropped back off at the shelter, like her, the, the friend who was in the cab with her told on her and got her kicked out because she assumed that because the cab driver and, and our client spoke the same language, that our client was revealing something confidential about the shelter. And even though that wasn't the case, the staff took the other person's side and our client was out back on the streets. she's homeless. And, you know, to, to really be thinking about like, like I think one of the things that we don't really talk about is like the the biases that people of color have with each other, right? Or we don't talk about like the anti-blackness in our communities and And I think that sometimes like that bias exists, and, and we're so focused in talking about like white people versus people of color that we don't focus on on our on our own stuff.
0: That's so crazy. Um, that's so crazy, but in in, in a general sense help help us understand why you took your privilege of education and the perspectives that you've had and, and decided to pour yourself into the work of helping people. And then this is just, you know, because it's not a path and there's no judgment here, obviously either way. Like if you want to go make a lot of money, that's that's on you. Um just please I hope that you do something good with that money once you do make it. Um you know again, like folks from or high school and other folks from, you know, who I would imagine went to the schools that you did, don't necessarily say, cool, now I'm going to go and, you know, run a, uh, a nonprofit making very little money, um, just except for the food that feeds your soul, like to do the good work. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
0: Was there a point in your life where like the light bulb went off and said, this is what I got to do? Or was it always in you? And that's how you ended up after you decided that law school wasn't going to be the path to take you there.
1: You know, I think it was always within me. Um, and it wasn't something that was like, you know, ingrained in our culture or in my family values, even. I think that when I was young, I'd always volunteered. Cause for me, it was like, oh, this is how you become an adult. You know, you go and you volunteer at the hospital, right? And I thought it was fun. Um, or, you know, I go and volunteer handing out water and registering people at the AIDS walk, not because we needed it for college applications. <laughs> But because they needed help and I was available, right? And, and because they're doing something good, like raising money to find a cure for AIDS, which, you know, we know impact people. And so I think, you know, just having that foundation was like something that I naturally gravitated towards. And so when I was in college, I was part of a service fraternity and uh, kept doing volunteer work. And when I graduated and left grad school, you know, I had wanted at the time to go into public service. Like, so I had wanted to work on the Hill and i had interned on the Hill, but then I, it just wasn't as appealing to me to be, you know, working, drafting policy, sitting at a desk, writing all day, right? Talking to people. And yes, that, that's all important work. But I think for me, like, I wanted to be doing something with my hands. I wanted to be on the ground. I wanted to be where the people were. To get to know them and I think for me it's always been about like who's being left out you know who's being left out of the conversation and even you know like we talked about high school and 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 like I was friends with like our you know our black and latinx brothers and sisters and I always felt like like why am I like of my group of friends like why am I the only one that has black and latinx friends you know t- like like why why am i the 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 one the odd one right so maybe, i don't know maybe i am odd but like it always felt a little bit different and and i think for me like definitely seeing and watching injustices happen wasn't something that i could idly sit by and be okay with especially because i saw that that things weren't changing and that voting although it's important doesn't bring about change as quickly right and No, as we got older, Congress was, you know, during, you know, Obama's administration, Congress was always, there was always a shutdown. There was always a government shutdown. (laughs) It was like, can't get anything done. There's always a government shutdown, right? And and now we have, now we live in the era of Trump. And and it just feels like if we don't, if we as Asian Americans don't step up now and we haven't stepped up, like, what are we going to do when they come for us? Because we've always been, we've always been next.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right
1: after blacks, like, after black African-Americans, we're always the next one. And so, and so like, even though that shouldn't necessarily be like the reason you, you like, you know, protest or vote or anything like that, it's like, how can we still just sit by and, and watch this happen?
0: You know, it, it reminds me of, um, not a big poem person, but that, that poem, um, it uh, written by a, a German pastor or something during uh, World War II. Um, you know, first they came for somebody and I didn't speak up and goes on and on. And it ends with, then they came for me and nobody was there to stand up for me, right? And I think it's, a lot of it is rooted in, uh, at least for Asian Americans, I, I think it's the, the context you have to understand of where our parents came from, right? Like, your parents left Hong Kong because there's a lot of geopolitical crap. Right, like,
1: Mm -hmm. yeah,
0: um, Korean folks, like occupation, war, like zero economy, and then boom, right? Like, people don't know how to process that in two generations. Our friends from Vietnam, like war, you know, refugee, like. So, I think for folks that are a little bit younger or don't have that full context, we get very angry, right? Like, I get very angry too. Like, why can't we see the humanity in other people? But I think our genetic code is still like on survival mode and when you're on survival mode it's you know me first right and it's not is it right no but is it like unilaterally like it's not easy to fix I guess it's my point right like because we, we come from like trying to survive ourselves but how do we then have the right dialogue with the right context in not only the actual language but the emotional language so that people can understand that like Yes, I agree that your life hasn't been easy. But however, at this very moment in time, we have to fight for people who sort of have it worse than we do. And so, I, I think 2020 has been, I hope, um, in our own community, is a not not as polarizing as the media's would have us believe, um, or you know, not just polarizing on a binary political system, but um, at a time a time when um, we can bring some of those topics to the surface and say, hey, like. Uh, perhaps the most overused phrase of 2020, but like, yo, like we're on this shit together. Like, you know, um, maybe you can thrive alone, but that's not long-term. Like in the long-term, you know, none of us can thrive until all of us can thrive. But I, I think a part of that too, is sort of how we've been told this myth of meritocracy and this myth of achievement that, you know, if you amass all this wealth, that somehow you can, live a life that's more comfortable which might be true which is true to a degree we see the examples of it all the time but uh-huh. but for us at least you know some of us asian immigrant kids like you only got to roll back 50 years into your family history and like our grandparents perhaps or at least great grandparents were destitute poor living on public assistance fighting in a war that they didn't start running away from people they didn't have any business with and so empathy i think is what comes to mind of, um, and, and I would challenge some folks listening, be like, you don't even need to, like, just look in a deeper mirror of your own family's history to fully understand that not too long ago, we were the ones who needed help. And we are probably only here, literally, because of the help of other people and laws that were changed or policies or some aid, whether through uh, NGOs or nonprofits, other nonprofits or even religious organizations that um, we were able to even have the opportunity to pursue education like you and I did and you know the the privilege that you and I have Jessica of talking on a Tuesday morning um, about things that our parents probably don't consider a necessary survival t- thing, right um, mm, These are yeah. in from from their perspective these are probably, luxuries and really nice-to-haves. Because um, for them, the primary motive was food and actual survival. And and so I, I, I it's amazing to hear and, and know about the work that you do. Let's talk about the work that you're doing now. Share with us in, in more detail. I know you gave us a, a preview of it before, but what does Justice and Logic do and why is it so important to you?
1: Yeah, so, so Justice and Logic... Um, is a uh, is my consulting practice that I started and it was essentially partially um, to be able to lift up um, Asian American leaders in the nonprofit sector is one of the many reasons why I started doing that work um, and helping organizations that you know were primarily led by Asian American folks or you know organizations of color like build the capacity that they need in order to survive right in a, in a sector that is primarily been made for mainstream white organizations, right? Um, and so through that work, I also have a partnership with a, a colleague um, out on the East Coast who's black, um, who's black, and we have a project called Healing Equity United, which is where our podcast is. Uh, podcast is Woke Isn't Enough. And so the majority of my work actually the last couple of months has been through that project just simply because of everything that's been happening in, in the U.S., And so we work with um, nonprofit organizations who are looking to actually make that culture shift. So these are organizations that have already been woke or were just woken up by George Floyd's murder. And they're like, we need to do something because our organization is very white or our board doesn't reflect the people who we serve or, you know, our younger staff. you know, people of color and white mm. are basically saying that there's something wrong with the culture, um, and so they'll come to us, and we'll have like a conversation about like how do you actually make that change, right? How do you become an anti-racist, anti-oppressive organization? And so we start with helping them identify where are they right now on you know the scale of racism, you know, like for as an organization, as a culture, and then we help shift them not just to become an ally, but to to really be a co-conspirator and an accomplice. So it's like, you can't be an ally in these times. Like, you know, you need to put away your safety pins, whatever you're wearing, you know, it's great that you're hanging up a Black Lives Matter sign or standing outside your front door shining a flashlight in the sky. Um, but it's it's like, we have to like be willing to take a risk and actually like shift the way things are happening, which might mean for some people like, If you're a white you know manager or director in a very white organization maybe that means that you need to leave your job and you need to you know insist that your organization changes and brings in a person of color because your organization serves 99.9% people of color right or it might mean that hey stop like looking for resumes that have master's degrees like let's actually weigh the lived experiences of people of color working, you know, on your issue or having lived through your issue. Like let's have that be assigned the same way as someone with the master's degree, because, you know, education is great, but education doesn't teach you like we are talking about earlier, like life skills, right. Or like street smarts or any of those things. So, so that's the work that we do. Like we, like I'm pretty radical when it comes to these things. Um, but yeah, like that's, that's, that's a path that we take organizations on and it's hard. It's it's really hard.
2: There's
0: so many things that you just share that I think is not even just in nonprofit world, but like just systemically challenging for people to break into. You know, in the corporate world, one one thing that I think people got to stop doing in, in higher education too, which is like referral system. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if you reward your employees by bringing your frat brother, like that's not going to work. And then you're like, oh. But we have this culture and, you know, we want to, um, and and realize that a referral program is generally a money-saving mechanism for the companies to find people without paying or doing a lot of the, the, the clawing and the digging, um, the recruiters, um, even if they pay you a 10 grand or whatever the referral fee might be, a percentage of your salary, like they save money, um, from an acquisition perspective. Um, but, but I think those are the things like, oh, we've always done it this way. Or like, you know, we want, um. You know, you you want certain logos, some school logos on your resumes or, you know, your board. Um, And so I I think it comes from like a a decent place of like wanting the members of the organization to shine or, you know, to to maintain or or build a certain culture. Um, But if you truly want to be equitable, like you said, the radical idea was that, you know, some people got to leave. And so, you know... um, Alex Ohani, Alexis Ohanian did that earlier right like stepping down from the board of Reddit but you know how many people will do that should do that before they get to Ohanian level of privilege where he don't need another dollar in his life anyway right like you know he, he is of such privilege you know with Reddit and obviously with his you know wife too like that he doesn't you know that's not a, a career defining or that's not a of um, livelihood defining decision um but for people who are still in their journey, um, you know, how, how do you, it, it's hard to look somebody in the eye and say like, yo, like you gotta go, or like you're the problem. <laughs> um, because we, we forgive, and whether it is a nonprofit or in the for-profit world, like the the good performers always get an excuse, get a pass, right? Like um, hopefully it's changing, but like, you know, from, from my, my previous career in sales, like top salespeople never got shit done to them, period. Because they always find a way to get justified to stay on because you're offensive. Well, that's cool. You know, he had a great quarter or, you know, he had a great month or whatever. So people keep him on. Do you see, have you seen in the last six months with your clients and with your other conversations of the general shift changing so that we can get to a place where we need to or has has the, the performative allyship sticker faded now that it's been a few months?
1: So I don't think it's faded. I think the clients that work with us um, work with us. They're nonprofits, right? So they have to get a grant to work with us. So it's not like you know they just pay us and then if they don't want to do it, they don't do it, right? It's not a
0: check mark, yeah. Yeah.
1: So I think for it. So change takes a long time, and when you're trying to change entire culture, it's going to take years. And that's something that we we have told um, nonprofit organizations, and we have seen people leave, and as oftentimes it's because they don't agree with like changing some of the practices that have been in place for a long time. Some of them can't get past their own white fragility, you know, and their white privilege, and, they, and they're not comfortable giving up power. So, and, and you know, when that happens, we're like, okay, well, we, we warn our clients that that's gonna happen. And when that happens, actually, like our clients will tell us that they're actually relieved that some of those people left because they were holding back the organization from moving forward. And for a lot of the organizations, it's like, we don't just work with any organization. We need to make sure that the bulk of your organization, like staff and board, agree with this culture change. Because if you are like the executive director and you're the only one that wants this to change, right? Like you've got to do a little bit more work before you're gonna be able to get everyone else on board. And so yeah, people have left. Um, organizations have have gotten better have been better for it. and I think it is hard to say to just leave your job, right? <laughs> it's it's hard, especially now in this economy. But yeah. you know, for people who are retiring, you know, like think about what what that might look like. That's different, right? Like if you're retiring and you're you know your position is going to be vacant, how can you make it more equitable? How can you pass on that institutional knowledge, right? If you're going to actually be a co-conspirator or an accomplice. Or if you are on the board of directors, right? Like, how can you make decisions for the organization that would make it more equitable? Like, one of the things that I advocate for is is getting rid of a give or get policy of a certain amount, because if you look at it from yeah. a class perspective, you're automatically like, you know, like basically saying anyone who's poor may not be able to to you know give at the same level as everyone else, and so. You know, my um, partner is, is uh, thinking about being on a board and their give or get is $2,500. And we basically told him, um, a group of us in the community was like, yeah, we, can't, you, we know you can't afford that. I can't even afford to pay to, to pay for his give or get as his partner. But our community was like, it's so important that you serve on this board and actually make change that our community will raise the money and give it to you. that you can satisfy that but how many people are going to how many of your friends are going to do that right for you to serve on a board and and so and so i think that we have to look at all different aspects of of how these decisions are made
0: that i think you bring up a fascinating part about diversity that i think we've been conditioned to think about diversity as race or gender Mm -hmm. Uh, but socioeconomic diversity is quite important i remember i was uh he, listening to uh, John South talking, and, and he's the CEO of LegalZoom and he says, okay. look, like I can make my board as diverse as I want from a color perspective, but you better be damn sure that we're all rich and that we're all educated. And that doesn't mean diverse at all. Right. And, and I thought it was so cool that he said that because he's recognizing his privilege and saying like, yes, it's a problem, but at the same time, like maybe in a nonprofit context, it's slightly different, but not that different that You want people on the board that can help you make decisions best for the organization. And there isn't not a causation, but a correlation of people who have money that may be of privilege serve on those boards, right? So maybe, like you said, like taking away that at least requirement of like pay to play or like an entry fee or like this suggested donation amount that precludes a lot of people from participating does make it at least a little bit more equitable. Um, I, i've been involved with alumni organizations for both of my schools in various capacities and you know it's they they would never write it in writing because why would they to get in trouble um for bad PR but there is always that like unspoken assumption or that you know uh i guess assumption that like yo like if uh you join the board like we have our annual gala you probably should buy a table and so that even even in the we all went to the same school. Therefore you have every right and opportunity to serve on a board that represents your demographic. But if you put that kind of pressure on somebody financially, then not everybody's going to feel welcome. Right. And then you're going to get groupthink of the people who can, because again, it's referral friend, referral friend, referral friend. Um, I, I want to ask you for your opinion on sort of nonprofit world and, and stuff in our own communities. Um, You know, maybe because we serve a specific ethnic or or racial community, uh, boards within the Asian American nonprofit world tend to be very Asian American, right? Because Uh they're community based organizations for the most part. Um, What can we do if our listeners are members or board members or, you know, um, involved with our own actual community organizations? um, What can we do to make sure that we don't have a blind spot or that we don't fall? to some of the things that um, you're working with your organizations on?
1: So I think one of the things that Asian-American nonprofit sector people need to think about is so we might think we're not racist against other Asians, but we might be discriminating against them based on their ethnicity, right? So like Chinese people may not like Koreans, right? (laughs) Koreans may not like Indonesia. You know, like there has been a history of that oppression like, you know, throughout like thousands for thousands of years, right? And that still exists. And so if you're a mainstream nonprofit, um, Asian American organization, you need to think about how that shows up. Like how does that power dynamic show up in, be, when, in between groups? So I know that I've been on boards of a very mainstream Asian American organizations. And when they talk about issues, they focus it on the Chinese community. Because <laughs> it was founded by Chinese people, but now we're not just Chinese right and so so oftentimes I think they forget the the Southeast Asians um, in the room or they forget the South Asians right and so it's like like you're here in the US you have to think about whether we like it or not like Asian Americans have been grouped together yep and so you need to think a little bit outside of like your own community right so I think that's that's one of the things that, that we need to be aware of I think the other issue is that we don't actually, and I've actually um you know, what's interesting is that after after the protest or even during the protest, I got a lot of requests from Asian Americans who wanted to learn more about anti-blackness, about yes. you know, race equity issues, right? And that it's it's sort of exploded in terms of like there's definitely not, not a lot of information out there. There's not a lot of books written on this, right, by our people. And so I, I think that is actually like something that's really good in terms of us even having these conversations. and I know, that people are really struggling with. Like, how do we talk to our elders about <laughs> anti-Blackness? Right? That's like an ongoing conversation, right? But, you know, if you are older, you know, you need to talk to your own friends about these issues. Yeah. You know, like that's something, I've had a couple of elders in, in my trainings and like that's, that's the privilege they need to pull out. Like talk to their friends, talk to our moms, you know?
0: That is a... I- I don't know. Um, I agree. I am of the belief that it is really, 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 really hard. Um, maybe even perhaps uh, improbable uh, <laughs> to get at least everybody on board. Um, you know, because we're we're also trying to undo decades of their own lived-in experience, and you know, it's. I, I, I think you know for those of us. Who, who feel a certain way, again, it is so easy uh, to look at the other side and be like, how do you not see it? Then it's like, well, I don't know if you grew up the first 30 years of your life in a country where you didn't see a single black person and um, you were, you were told to think about them in a certain way. And um, like for my family, I think it's, um, you know, here, here's the context. Like we moved here in January of 92 from Korea, no black people there. We moved to Fullerton, like, Pretty much no black people there. (laughs) And then the LA riots happened three months after we moved. You know, we were 30 minutes away. Yeah. Um, Koreatown burned. So for that entire generation, like black and brown people were the devil that burned our town. And we didn't know any of them personally to have built relationships with them. And, And that's why for me, I think having gone to Bronx Science was such a blessing because had I stayed where I did, you know probably wouldn't have had black and brown friends in high school. And even if they did, they would have been kids of parents who opted to live in a very white and Korean suburb to try to, you know, and so they're not the friends that you and I had in in high school. Right. So it, it, it's hard. Um, And that, you know, assumption that, you know, all Asians are Chinese, like, or, you know, how do you, and I think marketers too, like they have a tough time. Like, how do we talk to the Asian American market? And you're like, Care, like give a shit. Learn, right? You know, you can't. I, I think they've gotten better, but I, I remember like seeing some billboards written in like Korean, and we're like, dude, that was definitely a Google Translate job. Yeah, because the shit doesn't make sense. Like it right. actually makes sense because you know what they're trying to say, and you're like, <laughs> like y'all, y'all didn't have a single Korean friend to pass this by and be like, yo, does it sound right? So, but that's where we're coming from, and then where we have to go. Is, is a very fluid and like, you know, um, understanding place. But, but I am very inspired and, and um, you know, optimistic about the future. Um, you know, we were really, really lucky and blessed to participate in a lot of the different factors of uh, the Letters for Black Lives movement, which happened earlier in the year, actually happened in 2016. Um, and, and sadly, we're, we're still doing it, but there were like 2,000 people in the Slack channel, and there were channels coded by language. And volunteers, many of them who didn't know each other, just went and said, all right, let's, you know, co-create and, you know, collaborate on this thing and open up a Google Docs and go. And a lot of it was Asian Americans. A lot of it was because we felt collectively that that was perhaps one way that we were trying to get this message out to, you know, we say our family and friends, but who are we kidding? It's like mom and dad, right? Like, what can we send to mom and dad that like, you know, I sent it to my parents and like, it wasn't, there was no response. So, <laughs> you know, and we're not like seeing them in person because of COVID. Right. So like, right. you know, like what, what the hell do you do when you send them? You're like, Hey, I want to share this with you and like crickets. But again, I think I have to understand and, and I have grace for them too, that they're on this journey as well. And, 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 you know, granted, like when they're worried about their own survival and their own livelihood, like understanding that this might not be the thing that like they're gonna get fired up about. But anyway, the work that you do, um, as we mentioned earlier, uh, Michelle Kim of Awaken, she does great work. Um, she actually hosted a "How to Talk to Your Asian People" Asian people about anti-blackness, and that was cool. And you know, I think like a hundred people signed on. Like so, yeah, the the market is there, and I think we are we are finally turning a page of some sort. In um, not only do people who look like me and you belong in the DEI conversation on the facilitator side, but we also have to be active participants on the dissemination of the information side um, to bring other people along. And then no longer can we just say like, Oh, you know, if I go to a good school and get a good job that I can just sort of shield myself from all this. And I have to give you credit because it is exhausting and tireless work. The, the, the rewards at least financially, I'm sure are not as robust as one would like doing really important work. But I think the work that you are doing and with so many of your peers is hopefully moving the needle on just the general consciousness of uh, not even the entire country, but at least, you know, locally, uh, our community. Um, You know, it's unfortunate that really terrible things have had to happen for us to finally have this moment. Um, but if you look at history, uh, things change after unfortunate events. Because when things are good, you don't do a lot of introspection, right? right. When, when the weather's good, you don't change the sail, right? Like you only yeah. change the sail when you get into turbulent waters or when you're going into a storm because you have to learn. What is one thing that you learned, Jessica, about our community as you've done this work um, for, for now a very long time. And um, what are you optimistic about, in particular, the Asian American community in, in the face of the EI?
1: Yeah, you know, I think what I'm learning is is that there is a shift happening in terms of these conversations. I do see that there are, there's more Asian Americans wanting to learn, or at least understand, or at least are engaging in these conversations. I think that's something that has definitely shifted in the last couple of months, and I don't. I mean, it could also be happening because of COVID, right? But I also think that you know, one of the things that I'm really optimistic about is that I, I do think that I do think that there's a way out of like you know feeling this feeling of stuckness that I think a lot of Asian Americans are in. I think that, you know, one of the things that I I spent um, my uh, first couple of months in COVID like reading was just Asian American history. And, you know, we didn't have Asian American history when I was growing up. I mean, I I think they do now. And my partner grew up in Oakland and he took Asian American history. I was like, what is that? Like, what do you mean schools offer that? They didn't have that in my schools. They didn't have that for me. And like, we didn't even have that at Bronx Science, right? Like, it was no Asian American history class. It was like one month on China, and that was it. And we moved on from Asia. Um,
0: I, I can't imagine that being taught at wrong Science. No, who, who the hell would have taught it? I think we had like one Asian teacher, and she taught English or something. You know, like
1: no, we I, had two. We had Mr. Eng. Oh, <laughs> right. He taught. He taught that's, computer.
0: That's yeah. How t- how stereotypical?
1: Technical writing.
0: <laughs> and, and, and I think he's now. Um, he, he, he's now in charge of uh, the student organization. Is <laughs> um, he? I, I think so. Uh, I think he might still be there. But yeah, I mean, because the, the thing is like, who in that, so generationally speaking, relatively speaking to our generation, like who would have had to take, had to have taken those classes in college 10 mm-hmm. plus years out before we were in high school in the eight, or, you know, so in the eighties. Yeah. To have the wherewithal to get, you know, like all these magical things would have had to happen for the New York City Board of Education and their infinite <laughs> wisdom to grant and and have it be a part of the curriculum, right? Like for, for an academically, you know, uh, rigorous program. But now, thanks to the internet, thanks to other stuff,
1: mm-hmm.
0: hopefully our young people are, are looking for resources on their own. Certainly there have been books written, but um, I hope we're this show and the work that you're doing, like it moves the needle and gets people interested. Um, we had uh, Renee Tajima-Pena on the show earlier and she was a serious producer of Asian Americans, which like could not have come at a better time. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but, you know, uh, like accessibility is no longer really, or I guess lack of accessibility is no longer a good enough excuse to say I didn't know because it's all there. And for, for what it's worth, like I've, like that's one of my big regrets even about college. Like, did not lean into Asian American stuff. I was like, why? Why do I need to learn about myself? I know myself pretty well, so I'm gonna <laughs> go, I'm gonna go take some, you know, other, <laughs> more, uh, you know, I don't know, business classes or whatever I took, you know. Um, but but it's important, and I wish I had. Um, and and so but they also
1: don't market it that way, right? Little they, they don't market it. I think no. I, <laughs> So, like, when they don't market it, it's like I don't need to learn about how to be Asian. I know how to be Asian, right? Right. And, and I think for me, like, you know, reading our history, it—I had to walk away from like a couple of books, like Iris Chang's books and Erica Lee's books, a couple times, because it was like every single chapter was so uniquely tied to the black and brown experience in the U.S. Like, they've been lynched and killed. And dragged in the streets, we've been lynched and killed and dragged in the streets. They've been enslaved and segregated. We've that's also happened to us. And I think like what I'm feeling really positive about now is like that they're like our community is starting to pick up on some of these things. And so I am really hopeful that that we're actually gonna be able to begin to see how our communities are really tied together so that it's not us asking like, Hey, can you come help us out because Asian Americans are being discriminated against due to COVID, right? But like it goes the other way too. Because like South Asians wouldn't be in this country right now if the civil rights movement leaders didn't advocate for them. Yeah. Right. And and I think we have to we have to be looking at some of those issues.
0: I, I think one, you know, contextual thing too is we've lived in I guess the Asian American immigration patterns continue, have been and continue to be very fluid. Uh-huh. So like, again, in my parents' example, like we came here in 92, uh-huh. uh, we had to figure out how to survive. So like, why, like they didn't have the luxury to learn about Asian American stuff. Right. So because, right. And and so depending on when we came, a lot of us don't recognize until very much later that those experiences and those pieces of history still impact us today. Uh And again, in the silo of uniquely uh, different Asian American experiences, like now we're starting to see Asian American as, as a broader coalition or a broader term where we all understand that everything Makes sense if you look at it all together, but you know, do Korean people like I, th- I think my parents' understanding of uh, the Vietnamese refugee experience is whatever they learned about it from the Korean perspective in Korea, mm-hmm. and so they just right. brought it here with them. And there's a lot of you know uh, just layers in the way they view that, mm-hmm. right? And and so to look at it from an Asian American perspective of how they had to come here and, and survive in you know very very uh, rural and suburban white towns and and that like. That's very, very different. So, you know, will we ever get there where like we can even call the community even remotely monolithic? No, because mm-hmm. maybe not now because we don't let people in this country, but like like people will still keep immigrating here. People will continue to come study here and you know, um, and you know, the things that are happening in Asia impact us here whether we want to believe it or not, or whether we believe in it or not. Um, So yeah, I I think it's really important for us to understand our own history and like specifically Asian American history um, because there's a lot of people that we need to know about. There's a lot of events that we need to know about um, and continue to celebrate the good moments and continue to fight for um, at least the remembrance of terrible tragedies so that they don't repeat. And that, you know, because um, again, 2020 ain't the first time we put kids in cages, man. Um, yeah. And it's not the first time that we, you know, put people in, in terrible situations just because of the way they look. Um, and it's, it's happened to us. Um, as, as crazy as it may sound, I remember somebody asked me like, way, way, maybe in college or something like, you know, like crazy, stupid, hypothetical question, right? They're like, yo, if America went to war with North Korea, what side would you fight for? And obviously the side is like not North Korea, right? But but in a way, I was like, look, if the white Americans are going to kill me thinking that I'm North Korean, even though I'm their like soldier, Uh like maybe going to the other side is not the worst idea in the world because at least... I know who my enemy is. Like, it was this weird discussion that I have with my friends of, like, identity. Like, if we're always going to be seen as the other, right? And, like... Right. And if you watch the documentary, Asian Americans, and you see those, mm-hmm. like, they brought our own soldiers up to the front and go, this is what the enemy looks like. Like, that actually happened. And so I wonder how many of our own people actually were killed by our own soldiers in situations like that. I think we can talk about this for hours. I think which just... <laughs>
1: Probably. Both, both,
0: both, both uh, a blessing and, uh, well, not a curse, but um, just a signal and a sign that we have much, much, much more work to do um, in and out of our community to make sure that um, people feel supported and that people feel like they, they can feel safe in this country. Um, mm-hmm. as, as we said earlier, as we record this, uh, 10 weeks until election. So um, fill out your damn census, get registered to vote vote early don't mail it drop it off somewhere i think in california um they got the voting tracking thing going on so um at least in in la county you can drop off your ballot and then based on the barcode or whatever you can see when it gets counted and where it is and and so you know like i don't know technology's good sometimes i guess um to to help track our votes and make sure that our votes do get counted um Thank you so much for the work that you do, Jessica. Um, and I'm really glad that we we're able to reconnect earlier this year, um, after after 20 plus years. And really inspiring to see that um, you know a, a bunch of nerds from Bronx Science can can go on and do work that's actually meaningful for the community. And, and
2: not <laughs>
0: um, that that not that you know that not all of us ended up as you know nerdy doctors or lawyers or you know whatever else our, our friends and classmates are doing. Yeah, and even Jared, you know, he's he's closer to you. He's in Palo Alto, and he's like running a nonprofit helping underprivileged youth get like you know career advice. Like the, the three of us, we weren't supposed to be this, so. <laughs> but I'm glad we did, right? Because we're, we're helping people that I think need need you know need the most of our help. So. Yeah, for sure. And and the work continues. Um, you know, obviously. Yeah, the the work continues, and I think. At least maybe that's good for your business model that there will always be organizations who need help um, with with all this stuff. So as, as we do on this show, um, we we end the show with the Dear Asian Americans letter. The whole show, the whole idea of this um, was always on my mind. I, again, we didn't have Asian American studies in high school. Certainly wasn't you know exposed to various role models through adolescence and early career of people that look like me and you that did the non-traditional cool stuff. And so... After thinking about it for many, many, probably a decade or so, I said, F it, I'm going to do it," and then gave myself excuses because I couldn't come up with the perfect name for months and months <laughs> and months, and finally landed on a name, and then decided to start this early in the year on, on my daughter's birthday as as really a gift to her,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then for her generation so that they don't sit at 37 talking to high school classmates about you know some of the stuff that we wish we had um, growing up. So. I invite you to help us finish, close out the show and say what you want to the Asian American community, Um, whether the audience is a younger version of Jessica somewhere in the world or to our friends or even our, our elders. Help us close out the show, Jessica, and complete the letter, Dear Asian Americans.
1: Dear Asian Americans, one thing that I want you to all think about is that change doesn't come easy. You're always going have challenges. There's always going to be people who are against us. But there's also going to always be people who are on our side. You might not be able to see them or to feel them or to know who they are, but we are not alone in this movement. We're not alone in this fight. And, you know, I think one of the things to really think about is to remember is that you know, John Lewis has been on my mind for a while. And we have to make good trouble because not only because if if we don't do anything now, they're gonna come for us, but because they shouldn't have to come for us. <laughs> Nobody should have to come after anybody. And and just to know that we may not be able to end racism in our lifetimes. And if that's what you're you're thinking, then well i'm i'm sorry to let you know that it's probably not going to end in our lifetimes <laughs> but you know we can move the needle we can move the needle together and i think that today's youth really need us to do that they they shouldn't be fighting these battles alone little kids little black children should not have to hold up signs saying my life matters and and to really think about like every every Little bit that we can do, every little step that we can take right now is only going to mean a better future for them.
0: Yep, I, every time I see those signs, I, I think about my own kids and like and, and, and the, we, we see some of the you know the emotion that comes from these protests, and some people get angry at that. Why are you so angry? And why are you protesting, marching, and perhaps, you know, destructing property? They never ask themselves, what the hell must it take for you to get that angry? Right? Like, and it's, yeah. and it's hard, I understand it's hard to not understand what that feels like. And perhaps it's really hard um, to empathize because they look a little bit differently than we do um but there have been instances where people who look like me and you were victims of that and it's not very far in history and then perhaps before the advent of cell phones and cameras a lot more shit happened that we'll never know about and so it's not their problem it is literally our problem because on on you know like you said it could be next and we we can do something about it here very shortly at least with this year's elections i hope um but you know and you know joe biden or kamala harris getting elected isn't going to overnight solve these problems there are a lot of institutional and systemic problems and um, issues in our country that will take much much more longer or time to, uh, to heal if you've enjoyed this conversation with uh, jessica and me and you want to learn more about her and the work that she does uh, or even perhaps engage with her professionally to learn how she can help your organization. Uh, visit her website. It's jessaden.com That's Jess, n.com On Instagram, it's jessaydenlee, L-I. Uh, we'll put all those links to where you can find her and where you can contact her in the show notes. Really an amazing, I mean, overall, aside from the work that you do, just a really amazing human being, Jess. And I know the work that you do is insanely difficult and insanely challenging. Um, but in in the face of all that, um, for you to continue to do what you do and to continue to charge into what you do um, simply because it matters and that it's necessary. Um, really glad and really honored to call you a friend and uh, to support you in however way we can to uh, make sure that you can keep doing that work for a long time.
1: That's great. Thank you so much for having me on, Jerry.
0: Hey, folks, fill out your damn census. I've said that like a hundred times this week. Um, we're not going to air this, but we are recording this on 2020 census Asian week of action. And so census has been on my mind a lot. Register to vote, verify that you're registered to vote, bug your parents, um, especially if they feel the same way that you do. Um, if they are going to vote for the other guy, um, I don't know, you should still tell them to vote. Um, voting is important um, and, and vote early. Um, and then we got 10 weeks and and perhaps we all benefit from an extra time at home. Uh, we're not commuting. We're not going out to have fun. So consider donating your time and your gifts and money if you can to local campaigns and to people who believe in the same things that you do. Um, and then perhaps if that aligns with somebody who looks like me and you, that's an extra cherry on top uh, because I want my kids, hell, I want all of our kids to grow up with politicians that look like us. And so that they can dream so that maybe one day they can be the vice president of the United States, a black and Indian girl from Oakland or many of the other amazing people that represent us. So just the work is hard. Um, I appreciate you for doing what you do. Um, listen to her podcast as well. We'll link that in the comments or in the show notes. Um, don't forget to take care of yourself as the journey is long and to self-care. and I <clears throat> and and I wish you the best of luck as you march on in the good work